0: Well, we've come back to this wonderful, amazing passage in uh, Romans 11. And in Romans 11, just like any other chapter really in the book of the Bible, it reveals to us God and who He is. It reveals to us man and what we're like. It reveals to us God's plan. It reveals to us the gospel and how it is that we can know this one true God that is spoken so... Profoundly in the Old Testament. And we again have come to this. To another portion in scripture. That raises the ceiling. Of who God is to us. And humbles us. About how far short we are. In comparison to this great God. And it magnifies his mercy. And it magnifies his grace. And it magnifies his love. And it magnifies his kindness. So I hope that this morning as we study, that you understand we are studying God. And we've come to Mount Horeb, if you will. We should take the sandals off our feet. Understand that the ground that we are on right now is sacred ground. Let us give our attention and our heart and our devotion to the hearing of the Word of God, the study of it, letting our Lord speak to us. You know, we don't believe in audible voices. We, you know, that God would talk to us in some audible voice way. And we don't believe that, you know, almost like he, sometimes people would have us think that, you know, God speaks to us through billboards and smoke, you know, coming out of a, some tailpipe in the sky or whatever. The Lord speaks to us through his word, right? Amen. So let's give our attention to his word. We might hear his voice come back to our study of Romans 11 and we are kind of going along this major theme of has God taken back his commitment to Israel and I want to remind you that Paul is basically answering that question. He's basically answering the question has God taken back his commitment to Israel all throughout Romans 11. And I didn't just kind of make that up because I thought that would be kind of neat. I took that really from the not that hard to see. I took that from the very first verse. But there's, but when you stop and think about that question and that thought, and you might even say to yourself, why do you put the question that way? Well, it is also because the Old Testament is a record of God's commitment to Israel. Romans is... Uh, Paul explaining the gospel to us. And so you have this Old Testament being a record of this commitment. And you have Paul now preaching the gospel and explaining it to us. And then there's the Jew. And he's here and he's saying, Well, what place does Israel have in your gospel? I mean, if God's all done with Israel, then I can't believe your gospel, Paul. And I think it's an important thing for Paul to address that. In fact, in a sense... He really is defending the gospel. He really is saying, you know what? I want you to understand the purity of the gospel. You can believe the gospel. Now Israel is the issue, beloved. But I want to put a little caveat here. Not like maybe some say. And I think I can go to both sides here. And say that I think we largely get off track in, in two ways. Some get off track... And that they downplay Israel and others get off track and that they try to make Israel such a focus today that you find them tracking every little thing that's happening there in the Middle East and it's, and you got to know all the little details there and and everything seems to, is is that a connection to prophecy? Is that a connection to prophecy? And I think there's this undue emphasis on both sides there. We need to just let scripture speak and I'm going to show you the reason why I say that here in a moment. I mean, for one thing, we can't make too little of it because of all that the Old Testament says and what Paul says here in Romans 11. But on the other thing, but on the other hand, we must never forget they stand judged and condemned because they rejected Christ, right? It's not a Christian people or a nation at all. Got to hold those two things together. But Israel is the issue, beloved. We need clarity on how to understand her place as it relates to what God is doing? What kind of future does she have? And how is the the talk or the thought about her future related to the gospel? There has been mostly in the church from the 1500s to the 1800s one voice about Israel, and really, even you can go before them, but before that, but before that. There, there, there were not people that were articulating it. They began to articulate that voice somewhere between the 1500s and the 1800s. And some were very extreme about it, like Martin Luther. And you'll read of his. Uh, he really, uh, you know, you know, we need to be careful about you know all the things we say. And these are such beloved brothers that I'm going to share with you. But I mean. He was very extreme. He 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 had no bones about how he felt about what Israel had done to Messiah. But others were toned down, like John Calvin. But clear, John Calvin was very clear, there was no future for Israel. His conclusion was God's all done with her. She blew it. She, I mean God used her for a purpose, but now he's all done. She's like Nineveh. You know, remember Nineveh? Served the purpose. It was only about 100 years long. Nineveh repented. But then 100 years later, God, through the prophet Nahum, said, I'm done with you. I'm going to bring destruction to you. And that's kind of Israel's, just a, a larger version of that to so many of those during the 1500s, 1800s. Served God's purpose, but now... God is all done with her. Now, understand you could you could trace a real-formed approach right back to Augustine, and he lays it out for the very first time in, the, in his book, uh, *The City of God*. A tremendously, very important work to the to the church and to really even the, the work on understanding uh, the truth about the gospel and who God is. But much of it, in, in concept form, was based on an allegorical interpretation of Scripture, and what that means is basically he he took Israel to be the Old Testament version of the Church. He he called uh, Israel. Uh, look at it this way: the gathering of the people were called Israel in the Old Testament, and the Church in the New Testament. But the way Augustine saw it was same people, no distinction. Now that view was mostly untouched until the 1800s when a man, really a a group of people in Scotland, started to challenge it on the basis of being inconsistent with what scripture teaches. That man was Horatius Bonar, brilliant man, um, passionate, man who's known as the United Kingdom's evangelist in the 1800s. He wrote a book called Words to Winners of Souls that is, to this very day, one of the standout books on evangelism. His brother was, maybe you've heard of him, Andrew Bonar. And then there was another friend connected with them named Robert Murray McShane, who died at the age of 29. A great godly man. They founded and edited the Quarterly Journal of Prophecy from 1849 to 1873. In 1847, Bonard published prophetical landmarks containing data for helping to determine the question of Christ's premillennial advent. They liked having long titles back then. Um, But that that was what he wrote. He put this together. It was the first time in the church's history that there was a voice to any kind of heartfelt love and concern for Israel's future. So one voice until then. And to make matters more confusing, the the greater confusion came in 1948 when Israel became a nation, became a people again. Israel was sanctioned as a nation. And I think the... How does the church answer that? And I think we're kind of not right for turning a... kind of ignoring it. For closing our ears and saying, I don't really care and it doesn't matter. It did matter to Paul in Romans 11. To add to the further confusion, in 1967 there was the Six-Day War in Israel. And If you aren't familiar with that, it was, a, it was a battle for Jerusalem. It was, in the, it was right around the time of June. R.C. Sproul, a Reformed theologian and a dear brother that I love just about everything that that man writes, He made this comment back when that event happened. He said, quote, I remember sitting on my porch in Boston in 1967 and watching on television the Jewish soldiers coming into Jerusalem, dropping their weapons and rushing to the wailing wall and weeping and weeping. Immediately I telephoned one of my dear friends, a professor of Old Testament theology who does not believe that modern-day Israel has any significance whatsoever. I asked him, what do you think now? From 70 A.D. until 1967, almost 1,900 years, Jerusalem has been under the domination and control of the Gentiles. And now, the Jews have recaptured the city of Jerusalem. Jesus said that the, the Jerusalem will be trodden down underfoot by the Gentiles until the fullness of the Gentiles be fulfilled. What's the significance of that? He re, this man replied, I'm going to have to rethink this situation. Lots of confusion. Lots of kind of Not sure what to think about this. Not sure how to handle this. Not really sure what to do with. Now we have this Israel thing. Right before us. But before you get. Run to logic. Before you run to how you feel about it. Before you run to. You know the latest theologian out there. That's making such great connections. Consider what the scripture says consider our very own Bibles that we have in our hands. Many still are very confident that Israel doesn't have a future. Lorraine Bettner, another Reformed scholar and another man who's written some brilliant, very, very helpful stuff. He said this, for example, quote, It may seem harsh to say that God is through with the Jews, but the fact of the matter is that He is through with them as a unified national group. As far as the land there in Israel, He says this, It does mean that as any of them go back, they do so entirely on their own, apart from any covenanted purpose to that end, and entirely outside of Scripture prophecy. No Scripture blessing is promised for a project of that kind. So with all that confusion, we need a word from the Lord, I believe. And thankfully, Paul has given us that word in Romans 11. We need clarity. I long for clarity. I want to have it clear of my mind. I want to be able to walk through Scripture. I want to be able to understand Paul's argument. I want to be able to say, what is it that you're telling us? How does this relate to the gospel? What is it that I should believe We need to know if modern Israel is merely some kind of project outside of God's plans or if God will keep the promises of the Old Testament about Israel. What's God's commitment to Israel? Was Israel a project to the Lord? Is it conditional? Was God's commitment to Israel conditional? Does it reach a line where God says, that's it, no more? And, you know, even more significant, I think, is would he do that to us? Is he going to draw a line in the sand and say, that's it, you crossed it, no more. Taking that back. Salvation. Now let's turn to scripture to see. And I want to first start with this interesting visual given us in Zechariah 2.8. So if you want to turn to Zechariah 2.8, you'll see this fascinating, I think, uh, amazing uh, description. of. And the Lord gives these descriptions that sometimes... I feel like um, they're obviously not overdone to the Lord because He says them. But sometimes I feel like some of the descriptions of, of how He feels about those that are His are so incredible. I, I feel a bit unworthy of, of... You ever feel that way? I mean, I feel like it's so proper to call us sheep, but then to call us precious and those that are beloved and those that, who He cares for. Oh, I just think, you think to yourself, I don't I definitely don't deserve this, but listen to this what he says regarding Israel. Verse 8. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. In other words, the Lord will fight against the ones who come against Israel because why? Because Israel is the apple of God's eye. Notice what he calls Israel, the apple of his eye. What's that mean? Fascinating term. And, it, and actually, that, that, that phrase, the apple of his eye, occurs in two other places, Deuteronomy 32.10 and Psalm 17.8. And the idea is, is that, that which has the Lord's attention, that which has his special attention. In fact, in one of those passages, it literally means the little man in, in the eye. It does. You know how that is. You look into somebody's eye and you just see... You know, and you can see a reflection of yourself and you're kind of that little thing there in the person's eye if you look close enough. And that's what Israel was to God. Precious. That which is precious to him. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, quote, The point is that God cares for Israel, that Israel has a very unique relationship to God, and when you touch Israel, you irritate God in the most irritable part of a human anatomy that is exposed. End The eye. It's really, really helpful to, to think of, of it that way. The eye. That's what she. She had captured that, you might even say, fancy of God in the eye. And it's not good for us to think in terms of um, like a. We think of that. We think of like a woman who's, you know, has catches a man's attention. But it's not quite like that at all. Because when we look at it that way, the woman has all these qualities and characteristics that that a man is just kind of crazy about. And in this sense, I mean, come on. You know, there's not a whole lot to say about Israel that you would say, now, wow, look at that. Remember when she was so faithful? Well, not really. Remember when she was just so God... No. Remember when she just was... Well, we don't really have a lot to talk about, about that. And maybe some of you men do feel that way. You say, I don't know what you see in me, but, you know, keep seeing it. You know, that's all right. So when you mess with Israel, it's like poking God in the eye, see. He's a protector of her. And that's what was stated in the Old Testament. And again, somebody might say, but that's the Old Testament. That's the way it was back then. It's different now. Turn to Psalm 105. I'd like to measure Bettner's statement with Scripture. And I think he just kind of, I don't want to pick on Bettner because I really do believe he just basically put, articulated what has kind of been thought over many, many years. 1,800 years, 1,900 years. Start in verse 8. Psalm 105, verse 8. He has remembered his covenant forever. Who has? God has. With who? Israel. The word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. And then verse 10. He confirmed it to Jacob, to Israel, as an everlasting covenant, it says there. Then look at verse 11. To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance when they were only a few men in number, very few and strangers in it. He said that to them. They wandered from nation to nation, it goes on to say, from kingdom to another people. And then in verse 14, he permitted no man to oppress them and he reproved kings for their sakes. And then he says this, Do not touch my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Who's that? Israel. It's as though God is holding Israel right here and saying, don't touch them. Remember, remember when, uh, you can see so many examples of, uh, like when Edom was making fun of, in fact, you go to Obadiah, and you see this is a chastisement there. When Edom was making fun of Israel because Israel was kind of getting it, was, was really getting it from uh, all over, the, all the nations around, around her, and, And God says to to Edom, you're going to get it for laughing at your brother. See, there's a certain protection that God has for Israel that way. Don't touch my anointed ones. God's protecting her. You say, why? Listen to Deuteronomy 28, verse 13. The Lord will make you, that is Israel, the head and not the tail. And you only will be above. And you will not be underneath. If you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God to observe them carefully. Now, why protect her? Because God has made her the head of all nations. It was the Lord that did that. You say, well, but it was conditioned upon obedience. I heard that if you obey, right? If. I heard it. Well, you don't mean works, do you? You you, you don't mean to imply that she could keep her salvation by works, do you? She could keep her covenant commitment by works, do you? No. Let me ask you a question. What if Israel one day does listen to the commandments of the Lord and observe them carefully? Will the Lord say, oh, that was yesterday. Your time is over. Now again, to be fair, there are some that would say, no, the Lord will say, come join the church. Just come join the church. But when you look at that condition, the idea of that is they're enabled to obey according to God's gracious plan, according to His grace. It's the way salvation always is. You say, so where where are we now, though? I mean, Israel isn't about to be confused with a Christian nation anytime soon. So where are we now? Well, we are where Jeremiah 30 verse 11 was. For I am with you, the Lord declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Watch this. Only I will not destroy you completely. Why Why does he say, I will not destroy you completely? Because at this point in time in Israel's history, he is punishing her. Then he goes on to say in Jeremiah 30 verse 11, But I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. So in other words, for right now you get punishment. Right now are the days of punishment for her. Right now are the days of of coming against her. Now with all that, let's go back to Romans 11. Here's what sets up this whole discussion. Go back to Romans 11 and look at verse 1 and see how this got all set up. Verse 1, we have this umbrella statement that's made there. And it's a statement that stands for the whole chapter. Look at it there. He says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? Again, that word rejected means banished, sent away permanently. And the answer is given by Paul, he says, may It never be. Meganoito. Strongest possible way of saying this in the Greek. No way, Jose. Right? Now the question flows from what Paul's already said, chapter 9. Israel hasn't believed this stuff, right? Paul, your gospel didn't work with them, did it? Isn't that a problem, Paul? Isn't it a problem when you bring a gospel that the people of God don't believe? Don't you have a problem? It's not a problem, Paul says in chapter 9, it fits with God's sovereignty. He chose his own, and he hardened the rest, and so her unbelief fits right with his sovereign plan, but also chapter 10. But by the way, it's still her fault. So you can't say, well, why blame me? I mean, after all, I wasn't chosen. Whoa, time out here. But you rejected God. You rejected his son, Christ, the Savior. And in fact there in chapter 10 it says God sent her preachers in a clear gospel and she, verse 21, was disobedient and obstinate. You ever feel that way when you preach the gospel to somebody and, and they rejected and they rejected and they rejected? And you think to yourself, if I go back to this person, I've already told them the gospel dozens of times, what more do I have to say to that person? They're just not believing. That's what this is. Israel's heard the gospel. Just are disobedient and obstinate or stubborn. Hanging on to her own way. What did she stumble over? Chapter 9 verse 31. Over Christ, the stumbling stone. Stumbled over the truth about Christ. And you can see why this wouldn't even be a question. I mean, if there was no Old Testament, we wouldn't be having this, really. If there was no Old Testament, no big deal, really. I mean, we just kind of go, look, I mean, you had your chance, you blew it, let's move on. Church is a good thing. It's all it's going in a great direction. Seems like God's done with Israel. And if you're a Jew, though. And again, you've got to think like a Jew. If you're a Jew, you're thinking of Jeremiah 31 at this point. Verse 35, where it says, Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon, and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order, the Lord says, departs from before me, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me, forever the Lord says if if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth search out below then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done declares the Lord in, in my opinion and I gotta say I mean um in my opinion, that just says it. I mean, I, I can remember a time I had a, uh, was a, I, had a uh, I was an assistant pastor to uh, uh, the head teaching pastor, and he says to me, all right, your job is to write a, I want you to write a paper on amillennialism and premillennialism and postmillennialism, and I, those are words I hadn't really, I never heard much about those words. They know much about that at all. And I'm studying this stuff and looking at it. But I remember coming across this passage and going, oh, that does it for me. I don't, I mean, I just look at it and I go, he says, I will will never. I mean, you would have to get rid of the sun and the moon in order for me to stop having a covenant with Israel. My covenant with them has nothing to do with what they do or don't do, the Lord says. What's it based on then, Jeremiah? Well, it's based on the fact that God promised. That's what he says. And will you catch this? The Lord left the sun and moon and stars to be a witness in the sky for us that he will not set aside Israel permanently. That's what he says. You say, but she's set aside. Let's deal with that. She is set aside. True. And there's a reason for that. And so Paul explains that in three ways. And we see, first of all, the first wave is fractional. Verses 1 through 10. In other words, only part of her is set aside. The second way is fleeting. And that's verses 11 through 25. And what he means by that... What we mean by that is that it will be a temporary setting aside. And thirdly, that setting aside is focused, verses 26 to 36. In other words, it has a direction or a purpose that it's focused on. So let's look at the first one. Number one, Israel setting aside is fractional. What do we mean by that? Well, we mean only in part. say, why is that important? Well, it means that it wasn't total. wasn't a complete setting aside. In other words, a a, a fraction of Israel was set aside. And what that tells us, that tells us that God's commitment to Israel is still there. He say, prove it. Well, the Jews are coming to Christ. And part of Israel is coming to Christ. But Paul stands before us and he proves it in three ways. First of all, He proves it with a personal proof. And we saw that in verse 1 last time. Look at what it says. This is Paul's first answer to has God cast away Israel, his people. For I too am an Israelite. And then and so forth, he says, "There, son of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. What's what he's saying here? What's the point, Paul? Well, he's using himself as, as an illustration, as a point. In other words, God hasn't given up on Israel because he saved me. A man who could have been the the poster child for Israel. He really was. No greater nationalistic pride than Paul. He was the man. And so you look at Paul's conversion and you know that God hasn't given up on Paul. Excuse me, on Israel. You know, think of it this way. That was Paul's fear. That was Paul's fear before he was a Christian, wasn't it? Paul's fear before he was a Christian was, here is this church, and this church is setting aside Israel. Throwing her away. And so now here he comes to Christ, and he understands, God says, Israel's plan isn't like you think so he sees himself really as a major illustration of the fact that look God could not have set aside Israel because I'm telling you I still view myself as an Israelite Paul says I still see myself as an Israelite (laughs) excuse me (laughs) I didn't mean to do that sorry about that tape (laughs) right in your ear where would that come from That's Paul's first argument, okay? Let's look at the second one, the portional proof. So first he starts off with the personal proof, and he says, there's me, but now let's move on to this portion thing, and this is verses 2 through 6, and this is where we're going to spend most of our time here this morning. Second argument is this, God has always saved the portion of his people. He has always had a remnant. God's not done with Israel, and Paul proves it by showing that God has a remnant of Jews even to this day that are saved. He's holding on to them. Now what does that mean, a remnant, a portion? What we're going to do the remaining of our time here is use the text here to show you exactly what the doctrine of the remnant means. Well, Paul's already told us a little bit about it, though. And when we say that God has a remnant, we mean a select small group from the larger group is what we mean. Large group and a select small group. That concept of remnant has always been around. It's been around with Israel. It's even around today with the church. So you have what the theologians call the visible church and the invisible church. You know what the visible church is? All the people that come and sit down in seats. Visible church. All right? You got a name tag. You got a first church of the whatever. And the highest church of the whatever or whatever. I mean, you know, we got all these names, don't we? But, you know, just because he got the name and just because he got into the yellow pages doesn't mean you're really a church in God's eyes, right? And so that's the point. There's a remnant. Who's the? Re- who are the real true believers? And we should never, you know, be so ignorant as to think. You kind of look out here and you look at people and you say, Oh, look at all the believers, you know. Well, maybe. Maybe if you truly are His. And so that's how we look at this. Notice the connection to Israel in this letter. Chapter 9, verse 27. Concerning Israel, then it says this, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the what? The remnant that will be saved. In other words, God has never up to this point saved all Israel. Never. He never has. He's always saved the smaller group within the larger group. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 6. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Then verse 7. Nor are they all children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Now listen. Then Paul makes the point about Isaac and Ishmael and Jacob and Esau. Remember that? Just because they were brothers, didn't mean they both had the same thing, right? It did mean that God saved both. One was saved, the other what? Not. And that was his point. And so here you have two people that have the same blood, and that was his point in chapter 9, but only one of them is saved, and one is not. Just because you are an Israelite, he's saying, doesn't mean you truly are saved, or that you truly were. Remember chapter 2, verse 28? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. In other words, you can have two people physically circumcised, physically Jews, but only one be saved. Why? Because only one had the circumcision of the what? Of the heart. And we learned that actually this last week there in Colossians 2. In fact, just to kind of, you know, we kind of looked at this in our little flock group here. I mean... Colossians two, remember this here in the verse eleven when he says, "And in Him, in Jesus Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ." So, what's the body of the flesh mean? They say, "Well, ooh, wait a minute here." Romans seven, he talks about the body of the flesh. Does he mean that uh, we no longer struggle with the flesh? Sweet. No, that's not what he means because you know you that's not true. <laughs> You just struggle with it maybe last night or this morning, right? So, what's he mean? What what was removed? Sin. Sin. And he calls it the body of flesh there because it's the, it's the imagery of circumcision. Something's removed that circumcision. Kids, ask your parents, all right? Talk to them. So something was done there surgically at circumcision, and he says just in the same way there is a circumcision of the heart and those are the ones who really, really are the believers, the saved ones. And what Paul is basically telling Israel is you should be asking yourself how do I become one of those kinds of Jews? How do I get a circumcised heart see? But the point is is that God has always been selective. Always a remnant. And so what Paul is doing is laying out here the doctrine of the remnant. And he's using it to prove that God's not done with Israel. He's still committed to her. And one more thing. When you look at chapter 9, and you see here Paul talking about Israel and and the remnant. When you look at chapter 10, it's about Israel and the remnant. Now listen. What's the difference? I'll tell you. Excuse me, look at chapter 11. 11 is about Israel and the remnant. Here's the difference between chapter 9 and chapter 11, because you, you might be tempted to think, well, chapter 9 is all about Israel and the remnant. Why do we need another discussion about Israel and the remnant? His point of chapter 9 is this. Don't think that all Israel will be saved. You're under the impression, you're under the thought that just because you're an Israelite, you're saved, that all Israel will be saved. Don't think that, he says. You're wrong. Why? Because only the remnant is saved. You're not automatically in just because you have a zip code from Israel, just because you're born into the family. That's chapter 9. Now watch this. Chapter 10, or 11, excuse me, is the opposite. Chapter 11 is the opposite. He says, don't think all Israel will be lost chapter 9 don't think all Israel will be saved but chapter 11 oh but don't think that all Israel will be lost and you know it's real tempting to do that because right now you're looking at it going uh, she's behind that eight ball a lot yeah I, I would agree But this is the whole point of chapter 11 of Paul saying, "But God promised and he will fulfill that promise in a way that right now you don't see with your human eyes and you find it difficult to see And you've got people saying now well I guess Israel's getting smaller maybe God's plan is to just phase them out and that's what Paul's clarifying in chapter 11 with this remnant. three points to explain that by this passage let's look at the first one here, the starting point now, any remnant theology, any remnant doctrine always has to deal with the starting point when we talk about remnant we really are talking about election we really are talking about a chosen people a people that is select, a small people look at verse 2 God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now we looked at that last time, but let me add a few thoughts to what we learned. How do you get to be a part of this remnant? Starting point? Foreknowledge. It's foreknowledge. You see it there? God hasn't rejected those whom he foreknew. It's people whom 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 he foreknew. How do you get to to be in that place? This is why, by the way, this is why salvation could never be by works. Because you have to be in the foreknown part. And that happened before the foundation of the world. What could you possibly do to change that? To get into that group, right? Nothing. You weren't, because you weren't there, see. And you can't, you know, do the little cute deal back to the future, you know, where you kind of, all right, see if I can. You say, you weren't there, and so it's the undone deal. You're foreknown, right? And that's that. Starting point is foreknowledge. See, why would why would God reject the people who, the people He foreknew? And you remember what we learned about foreknow to and, and to foreknow means a, it's that word that means a, in the Bible that means to set a boundary on someone or in this case a whole nation and attach a personal affection on them. It is literally predetermined love. And, and you go back and you say, well, who, who's that? Who is it that God foreknew? Who's the people that he's talking about? Well, we read the connection to 1021. Clearly, he's talking about Israel. But you go back to Amos 32, and there you see an, also that same connection to Israel. The people as a whole. He's foreknown. And so in, in some way, he deals with them corporately. And in another way, he deals with them more just as a remnant. Always that way. And if you don't have that in your mind clear, then I think when you go back to the Old Testament, it's going to be difficult to go, now why did he say that? Who's he referring to here? Why Why talk like that to this very disobedient people? Predetermined love, that's how the remnant works. It reaches back as far as you can reach with the Lord. His mind before he created anything. God made a decision about Israel. And Paul's point is, they are here because of God's predetermined affection. How can God go against that, right? So that's the first, that's the starting point. You always have that starting point when you talk about the doctrine of the remnant. And again, you might be thinking to yourself, I still am not certain how this has to do with Israel as a whole. You thinking that right now? That's all right. We will get there, especially towards the very end. But for right now, you do understand that his argument, Paul's argument here, is that because of this foreknowledge, God has not rejected his people. And it stands as a proof in Paul's argument here, Of his statement in verse 1. Let's see the second. Explanation of the remnant. Number 2. Scriptural insight. A scriptural insight. Verse 2. Here comes the illustration about the the portion. Or the remnant. Look at verse 2. Or do you not know what the scripture says. In the passage about Elijah. How he pleads with God. Against Israel. Now, this is a historical place, so we have to do our work, don't we, historically. So let's go back to, turn to 1 Kings 18, and I want you to see this. Really, this is 1 Kings 19, but to set it up, you've got to go back to 18. Now, Elijah is the great prophet he was. I mean, he did amazing things. He had amazing things to say. But in particular, he was a man of great miracles. And you know, what's it say? It says in verse 3, uh, Lord, they have killed thy prophets. They have torn down thine altars. And I alone have left... And they are seeking my life. That's what he says in Romans 11. That's a quote of 1 Kings 19. And and what's God's answer to Elijah's dilemma? Verse 4. I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That's the remnant, right? 7,000 men. Lots of people in Israel. I have set apart 7,000 of them. They're the remnant. Now let's paint the picture here from 1 Kings 18. Very similar, by the way, to Paul's day. Not exactly. You want to be careful. Not, it's not an exact correlation. That's not the reason why I put it. It's not a you know, cross for cross, line for line deal here. But Israel is about as far away from God as you can be. You say, well, how bad is it during Elijah's day? Chapter 18, the king Ahab had a wife named Jezebel. You familiar with Jezebel? This would be the, you know, this would be the anti uh, Marriage conference, you know what I mean? This is what you don't do, all right? This is the wife you don't look for. This is the marriage you don't have. Okay. Well, Jezebel, here's here's the woman that Ahab picked. Jezebel was a worshipper of pagan gods, in particular the the, the deity, or the the, the god uh, Baal, the false idol, the fo- false god Baal. And she was a not only, not only was she that, she was also a keeper of the worship of various temples of worship to these gods. And so she had a hand in that. It, seemed, it seems as though that was kind of her job, to go around make sure all these temples were together. That was where she came from. Her, her family was was majorly into that. That's the woman that Ahab went out and married, okay? I don't know how that all worked, you know. Uh, but he obviously was a wicked man, um, And I say this, young man, marry well, all right? All right. So this lady was so wicked and just godless and anti-God, in her first line of action as the first lady, and by the way, she called herself Queen of Israel. She did. Her first job was this. Round up all the prophets, kill them. And she did. Except Obadiah hid 100 of them. 50 in one cave and 50 in another cave, Okay. Over there by uh, 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 Mount Horeb or, or Sinai. That's what we know today. And so there was great darkness during Israel's day. And it was a real dark time. And you have this lady and she seems to be wearing the pants. And things are just really going bad. Okay? And she's just kind of pulling strings. And she's being intimidating. And she is more than that. She put together 850 pro- uh, prophets of Baal and, and the Asherah, and she has them. And it says that in chapter 18, Elijah goes to confront Israel and Ahab. And in chapter 18, he said, "Okay, gather your prophets." And and, and she had all these inner 50 prophets who, who used to eat at her table. It says. And the idea of that is that's basically Jezebel's kind of fellowship, right? Get together with these prophets of Baal and the Asherah and and just show them that she's linked with them and and we're together in this deal. So Elijah says, okay, that's it. I'm drawing a line in the sand. Pat it with this. The Lord hates this. And I come as his prophet. And I've got a word for you. He says, It's time to go head to head. Let's have a contest and let's see whom God favors. And I tell you what, let's put the stakes high. And that's what he does. And so what's Elijah doing here? I mean, I think what you see here with Elijah is, it's just him and these wicked, immoral, brutal people. But you know, Elijah knows that he has the truth. And God is on his side. And so he walks in there with that confidence against these prophets, against Ahab, against Jezebel, and he says, you can't do this anymore. It's time to go head to head. And he's taking it to them. And I'll tell you what he's thinking. And you get this from this context. He's thinking that God's going to uphold his truth and his hatred against idolatry and that God will destroy all of Israel All of evil Israel, listen, and reform it and save it. He's thinking that. He believed that. You'll see it. So all these prophets gather around, and he he has them put an altar together. Remember this here? And, you know, they built their altar, and they... uh, and he says, all right, I want you to sacrifice, you know, we're going to sacrifice, make our sacrifices here. And then what we're going to do is leave your sacrifice and pray. And whoever is God will bring down fire on that altar, right? And then we'll know who's the real God. And you know, Elijah was putting his neck on the line here because he knew that if God didn't come through for him, they would just kill him. Of course, he trusted the Lord, so he knew what he was doing. And so they're both going to call on, you know, their gods, and the real gods going to answer by fire. And these prophets get it going, and, you know, Elijah just taunts them. And he says, where's your God? How come he's not answering you? Maybe, you know, maybe you've got a bad connection, you know. Maybe you ought to check your server or something. And so he's not answering. Nothing's happening, right? And, of course, they fail. And Elijah has his turn. And you know the story. He fills water around the trenches. And and he calls on the name of the Lord. And what happens? He burns up the water and the sacrifice. And it's clear who who God is. I love that. He says, you know, I'm going to douse all this stuff with water. Fire and water are not supposed to go together. God's fire is so amazing, so incredible. It's like Hebrews 12. Our God is a consuming fire, right? And then the people, even as they see this, they confess that Elijah's God is God. and They do that in verse 39. But notice too in verse 37 what Elijah's hoping God would do through all of this. Look at this. This is his prayer. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. Watch this. And that you have turned their heart back again. See? You know what what he's thinking is going to happen? Reform. Just like that. God is about to turn the hearts of the people back. He's doing it. This is what Isaiah, or, or, what Elijah wants. He wants spiritual reform. That's not all. It says after all this happens, Elijah kills all 180, 50 prophets. And listen, they didn't just line up one by one saying, all right, there you go. We'll, we'll hold up our end of the deal. I mean, after all, you know, you won, we lost, chop it off. It wasn't that easy. The fact that he was able to take all one, 850 of these prophets and kill them, slay them himself, is a miracle in itself, isn't it? Unbelievable. So what do you think Elijah expect is expecting is going to happen? Well, what did he pray for? I kind of think that he was, he was thinking Acts 2, right? Holy Spirit's going to come down. People are going to repent. This is going to be sweet. I mean, this is going to be great. This is going to be a day to remember in Israel's history. What what did he get, though? Nothing. Big fat zero, right? In fact, he got persecution. Go back and read the account. He goes actually in to be closer to where Ahab and and Jezebel are. Why would he do that? Because he thinks that the Lord is now going to set this deal up. But what happens? He doesn't. And so what did Elijah do? He ran. <laughs> I'm out of here. Chapter 19. Jezebel sends a messenger to Elijah to let him know that she will have him killed by tomorrow. A little ultimatum here. Verse 3. and That made him afraid and he fled for his life. How bad is it? Verse 4. Elijah prays for God to take his life. Why? Because he thinks there's no hope. And instead of revival, he got rejection. And so this is bad. This has turned really, really bad. Verse 10, the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, he prays. In fact, that was so much on his mind. Notice verse 14. Notice at the end of verse 14. And I alone have left, he says. In other words, there's no more Israel. We're all done. I'm, I'm it. I'm it. And he's saying to the Lord, I'm no nation. In fact, I'd like to die because, you know, I've got this you know, crazy woman after me. I mean, I, this is it. I don't like this. So how could God encourage Elijah? Verse 18. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elisha. You are looking with your eyes, and it's physical, and it's flesh. You're not looking with spiritual eyes. You're not seeing as I, the Lord, see. You need a different view of things. In other words, I've got a remnant in Israel. Now turn back to Romans 11, and let's put this together. Look at verse 2. Elijah prayed with God against Israel. How how can Elijah be against against Israel? I mean, Israel? You're an Israelite though, Elijah. Well, he's not in favor of getting rid of them as a whole, just the bad ones, right? Now now you can understand verse 3. Elijah's not afraid of losing his life. Listen. I mean, after all, he prayed for God to kill him. You know what he's afraid of being? He's afraid of being the only one left in Israel. Being extinguished by Satan's servant. That's what he's afraid of. Not afraid to die. Death is not an issue to him. After all, he prays to die. His issue is that here he is, and he's all alone, and he's the only one, and Satan's servant is after him. See? Now Paul isn't saying he's like Elijah in that way, but let me tell you something. What he is saying is the situation right now in Israel and in the church is no different than it was back then. Looks pretty bad, doesn't it? Looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? But God always has a remnant. He always did. Elijah calls for judgment. God says, no, I've got my people right here. It's okay. In fact, look at verse 4. What is the divine response to him? Fascinating word. In the Greek, it's one big word, and it means the divine oracle. It means an answer that is beyond man. How can you explain what's going on, Lord? See, isn't that what Paul is saying we need at this time? Sure. We need his promises to Israel. We see Israel set aside, and we have to say what is going on, and we need a divine response, don't we? Notice 2 verse 4, I have kept for myself. God says that. What's that? Sovereign election. God has his own, and it reminds me of what Jesus said in John 17 when he says, I I have kept those whom you have given to me, and here is the nation, and the nation is apostate, but God has kept some for himself. I love it. Beloved, let us also gain a principle here. It's so easy to look around at this nation. It's so easy to look around at Fallon and say, what a godless city. What a godless place. Are there any believers here? And as a pastor, I sometimes have to feel the, the, the weight of that of my own heart. And the Lord's answer always is, I have a remnant. You go be faithful, you go pray, you go proclaim the gospel, and I will save whom I have to be saved. This is... Uh This is actually the history of Israel. God has always kept for himself a small number, a portion. I mean, how many went into the promised land from the first generation there from Egypt? You ready? Two. Joshua and Caleb. (laughs) Now that's a remnant. (laughs) Two little people. I mean, how about the way it was during Daniel's day? And how many of them were godly? Remember Dan and his friends? Okay. How many were were there during Jeremiah's day? Baruch's friend. I mean, that's about it. How many came back from the captivity? Not many. Maybe you can understand Jesus' statement in this light too. Matthew 7. Broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many find it. Narrow the road that leads to life. And few that find it. Jesus says that to Jews by the way. He says that to Israel. Look. You think it's just all you. But I'm here to tell you. It's a small number that are getting in. Small number of Israelites that are getting in. And you can see all of this all the way through the New Testament. How many, how many disciples... Right? How many Jews received the gospel of Peter's message? You see, well, it got all the way up to 20,000 people. Yeah, sure it did, but how many do you think were in Israel? A lot greater number than that. Always a remnant. There's always a number that's smaller than the larger number. You know, it's interesting... Um, you can even go to Revelation 7 where it says that in the end it's going to be 144,000 Jews saved and that are going to be turned into evangelists. and That's the coming future, folks. But listen, that's just just a little portion. It's really a portion. So you're left saying, okay, I still, okay, portion, but what does that have to do with all of Israel, the whole nation? are well, we're getting there. The Lord is always reaching the Jews through his servants, his evangelist. James, the first New Testament book written, you know who it's written to? It says there in verse 1, To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. You say, who are those? Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. How about 1 Peter? To those who reside as aliens scattered. The diaspora, the dispersed, who are chosen. Who are they? Jewish Christians. How about Hebrews written to Jewish Christians. God has a concern for the remnant of Jewish believers. And I'm here to tell you the reason why he does is because there's something coming down the road. And in fact, I'm going to tell you now, and we'll explain it once we get there. But in verse 26, when it says, Thus all Israel will be saved, that's such a massive statement because that's the first time ever, ever, that that can be said about Israel. So that's the scriptural insight from Elijah. Great illustration. And let's... really says it all, but how do you get to be a part of this remnant here? We'll end this way. Point number three, the spiritual grounds. The spiritual grounds. Verses five and six. Okay, the Lord chooses a group, always has his group, but on what basis? I mean, are they the guys that shine? Did he just pick the guys that were really all-stars? I mean, are they the smartest people? Are they the hardest working people? Are they the most knowledgeable, the the nicest or the richest? How do you get into this group? Well you go back to Romans 4.5 and it says that God justified the ungodly. Okay, so we're whoa, wait a minute here. The ungodly? So I have to be ungodly? No. <laughs> you already are. You qualify. See? How do you get into this group? Well, what's it say here? Look at verse 5. According to God's gracious choice. What's that? Electing grace. God chose his group. God chose each disciple. Handpicked each disciple. Acts 13. God granted repentance and faith that le- leads to eternal life. Say, so Why does the Lord do this with certain Jews? He's faithful to keep his commitment to his promise. And by the way, he is still saving Jews even to this very day by his grace now listen carefully there are only two roads there are only two ways that man tries to come to God and only two only two one of them will end up in salvation the other will not there is the way of self effort that's the one way and that way will end up in hell. And then there is the way of self-denying faith in God's gracious provision for salvation, Jesus Christ. And that self-denying faith in God's gracious provision will end up in salvation. Look at verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer what? Grace! In other words, how might a Jew today get saved the same way anybody else? In the same way it's always been, by grace. I mean, hasn't that been the whole study in chapters 3 through 8? Salvation is by blood-bought grace, not human achievements. Not many Jews could accept that, but some did, and that's the point. And he's using that as a point to say, look, and because of that, understand, he's not done. He will keep his commitment to what he has said. In fact, the fact that some were, were chosen by God for this grace, Second Timothy 1.9, means that God is not done with Israel. So let's bring this to a conclusion here. The main point is this. Not all Israel has been assigned. Prove it. Okay. Paul. I offer Paul his conversion. That's the personal proof that God isn't done with Israel. And then secondly, he says, I offer the remnant, the portional proof that God isn't done with Israel. But that's not all. We have another one that we're going to get to next week. And yes, it does start with the letter P. But you know what? This is good stuff. This is exciting. And I think one of the reasons why this is so exciting is because it basically tells us that God can be trusted. That God keeps his word. His commitment to his own is unbreakable. What a gospel, beloved. Completely affirms God's plan, his faithfulness, his promises, his covenants, his word. And I ask you this here this morning. What about you? What about you? Do you belong to his people? you can just cry out for God's mercy and his grace and you know what he promises he'll give it to you you don't have to go work for it you don't have to earn it you don't have to you know you don't have to go ten you know grab beads and do ten of these and five of those he it's free grace free grace you don't have to go spend you know months in a you know infirmary or whatever free grace can't even earn it. He'll give it on the basis of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for you. Hallelujah. And I'm thankful for that. Let's pray. Lord God, we um, we think of these thoughts, Lord, and just how gracious you are, it says here. You've kept for yourself. You did it with Elijah. And what a great illustration, amazing illustration, Lord, to us that your uh, your purpose of salvation, your purpose of redemption, your plan as a whole, the plan for the kingdom, all of it, Lord, will happen exactly as you said. And we can trust you. And your word is pure. And every bit of it, Lord, is used for us to increase our worship of you. We love you, Lord, and we thank you. And, and Lord, I, I must admit, there is great mystery in all of this, and yet, Father, I pray that you would just lead us deeper into your word so that we can understand and that our worship would be purer and our love deeper for you. And we thank you, dear Father, that you are uh, not all done with Israel, Lord, but Lord, help us to not have a focus so much on such events that are happening today as though i um, we, we, I mean, we don't know what's really going on that way, but we do know what your word says. We do know, Lord, that you, you have given us a way to know you through Jesus Christ. And I pray for those that here that don't know you, Lord, that you would open their hearts, bring them to that place, that they might know this joy and be released from that which is a burden and bondage to them. We pray for this in the name of Jesus Christ.